We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Yes, we'll be in Psalm uh, 3 and 4 tonight. I have to say that um, when I look at myself, I, I see what God has given me strength in and what God has decided to kind of hold back from me. And some of that is singing, uh, in my opinion, and probably because I have such a tender heart. Some of these hymns we sang tonight were just so touching. I'm just <laughs> crying as we're going through it. So uh, excellent, excellent song selection tonight. So, All right, so Psalm chapter 3, please. The Lord helps his uh, troubled people. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Psalm 4. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But I, I'm sorry, Selah. But I know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Drew, thank you very much. Notice both of those psalms speak about sleeping. Well, good evening. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening. Maybe it's uh, 
hard to believe, maybe it's easy to believe, that we've come to the last two verses of First Timothy. And, uh, but it, I can be assured, is not the last time we will look at this book. Maybe we'll put it to rest for a little while. Whether we, myself, or pastor, or someone in the future, I'm sure we'll take the task of uh, going through it again, and I'm sure they will do a much better job than I could ever do, and praise the Lord for that. But uh, until then, we focus on what we have left of this letter to Timothy, young Timothy, a pastor, uh, an apprentice, we might say, of Paul, a son in the faith. And we'll see that kind of relationship in the... the uh, the great concern and great urgency that Paul has for Timothy in his, in his final words here this evening. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20-21, we see Paul's really final appeal to Timothy. But we might say it this way, it's really the final appeal not just to Timothy, not just to the church in Ephesus, who would hear this letter read in their presence, but also to us today, the final appeal to us, Fellowship Bible Church of Ann Arbor. We learn in these last two verses a very important truth, and it is this truth that believers must guard the truth by avoiding the ungodly or, we might say, uh, useless chatter and contradictions of so-called knowledge, as it causes some to stray from the faith. Let me say that again. This is the truth that Paul is teaching here in these last two verses, that believers must guard the truth by avoiding the ungodly chatter and contradictions of so-called knowledge, as it causes some to stray from the faith. Let me read these two verses, and then we'll look at them in some detail this evening in the minutes remaining. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. There's only a few short sentences here, really. A few small remarks, but they are very important. Before we look at them in detail, let's just go to the Lord and ask for his help that we would understand and apply these things. Our Heavenly Father, may your spirit work in us. May he teach us. Lord, And may we obey the things that he is teaching to us this evening through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look back all the way to the beginning of 1 Timothy, up through chapter 6 to verse 19, we've seen a number of instances where Paul gives a personal charge to Timothy in this epistle. We saw that uh, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. I'll just read that again for you since it's been so long. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We could use the language Paul uses later in the epistle where he says, Fight the good fight. Persevere in your faith. We saw 
uh, a larger kind of uh, encompassing charge in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, or maybe I would say you know, a larger description of what that charge is. We saw also a, another charge in chapter 6, verses 11 to 16, where he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, and then so on and so forth, as we looked at just in the last few weeks. And so we see these kind of personal charges to Timothy. But this charge here in verse 20 really encompasses all of the previous commands that Timothy has received here from Paul and more. And I'll explain what I mean by that later on. So this charge is kind of encompassing everything he has told Timothy up to this point. And now he's saying, guard what was committed to your trust. As Paul writes this final appeal to Timothy, his beloved beloved son in the faith, we note that his words are wrought with emotion. O Timothy, that O is is an emphatic kind of word there, adding this sense of urgency to what Paul is about to tell him, his son in the faith. But let me encourage you with this thought that this urgency should not be lost on us today. In other words, Paul's final appeal has just as much of an urgency and importance to us today as to Timothy in his day, as this charge is ours as well to obey. And Paul's charge is this. It's a charge concerning the faith. A charge concerning the faith. And he begins by giving this imperative, this command concerning the faith, saying that believers must guard the faith. Timothy, guard the faith. There's one main command here in verses, these last two verses that Paul gives here, and that is to guard what was committed to your trust. Guard what was committed to your trust. The word guard is the responsibility given to Timothy. It's the command. But unless we understand what it is exactly that Timothy is to guard, we cannot understand how Timothy, and all believers for that matter, you and I, are to fulfill this command. How do we know how to guard or what to guard if we don't know what we are to guard? What exactly was committed to Timothy? Well, the ESV describes it as this, or translates it this way. It says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So that helps us maybe a little bit, you know, get closer to the answer of exactly what was committed to Timothy. It was, it was whatever was Timothy is to guard, it was entrusted to him. It was a deposit of some sense. The word for entrust or committed denotes the idea of a treasure, Okay, that helps us a little more. It's a deposit, it's a treasure, or it kind of denotes the idea of a valuable property entrusted to someone for safekeeping. The word is used uh, of God keeping what was entrusted, excuse me, the word here is also used by Paul in regard to God keeping what Paul had entrusted to him. Look with me at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. 
Paul writes this, he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, and we'd have to back up to understand that a little bit more, but he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I, not, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed or entrusted to him until that day. What is it that Paul had committed to God? It was his eternal life, his soul. He had committed and entrusted that to God for safekeeping. In fact, uh, the song that Josiah picked earlier talked about, had that language of, of giving to God our soul for his keeping, for security. We do that, don't we? We say, God, I trust you. Keep my soul until the day in which I am resurrected. Keep me in your hand, in the palm of your hand. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I've, I, have, uh, I have, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him or entrusted to him until that day. And that is Paul's eternal life. And so the same word here is then used in 1 Timothy 6, but in a kind of opposite way. Something has committed, been committed or entrusted to Timothy for safekeeping. So, you're probably thinking, we still haven't answered the question. What was it that was entrusted to Timothy? Well, there is no explicit language here, so we kind of have to deduce or derive from elsewhere and from even within this epistle what exactly was committed or entrusted to Timothy. Some suggest that Paul is referring to Timothy's spiritual life, so maybe somewhat like what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 1.12, where, where uh, he is to guard his, his, his saving faith, that is, persevere, don't abandon your faith, but guard it, keep it, keep it secure, don't turn away from, from the faith which you believed in. Others suggest that uh, what has been entrusted to Timothy was Timothy's call to ministry, Remember, uh, Paul says earlier in the, in the epistle, you know, don't abandon what's been entrusted to you, your, your ministry, your calling, keep going, don't give up. So context tells us it could be that. Or others suggest that Paul is referring to the apostolic teaching, the apostolic teaching. As I said, it's possible that Paul is reemphasizing the need to persevere in his personal faith. Chapter 6, 11 through 16 would suggest that, possibly, that Paul is telling Timothy to guard his faith, that is, persevere in his faith. In other words, guard your faith in Christ against the dangers of false doctrine. While it's possible that that is what Paul means, the context here, that is, the immediate context, so the rest of verse 20 and into 21, as well as 2 Timothy 1.14, which we'll read in just a second, these two together seem to identify that the thing that has been entrusted to Timothy was, in fact, the apostolic teaching or apostolic doctrine. Look with me at 2 Timothy 1.14. 2 Timothy 1.14. Starting in verse 13, he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words, apostolic teaching, the things Paul had taught him, which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
that good thing which was, what? Committed or entrusted to you. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So what is the, what is the content of the thing entrusted to Timothy here? It's the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. The teaching of Paul. The teaching of the apostles. Remember uh, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, a uh, pastor has been teaching here. And uh, let me just recall that, uh, rehearse that for you. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in, do you remember, the apostles' teaching, or excuse me, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers? So we see here that this was the, the, uh, the early example of the church to, to both teach and hear and receive the teachings of the apostles. That's what they had in that, state, in that stage of the early church to grow in. It was the authoritative teaching for them to abide in. So... As we look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20, we answer then the question in this way. The, things, the thing or what was committed to Timothy was the apostolic teachings. Or we might put it this way, the body of truth which we call the Christian faith. The gospel being included in that. The early church grew under the authoritative of the teaching of the apostles. That's what they had, in addition to the Old Testament, of course. But they didn't have the, the, uh, the final canon, at least not early on. And so they had the authoritative words of the apostles, as well as the Old Testament, which the apostles used and taught from as well. But we, uh, you know, you might say, well, that was then, this is now, but... What are we growing under today? The authoritative words of the apostles, right? That's what the New Testament is, is it not? The words of the apostles, the, the disciples, those who were closely uh, connected to the apostles. And so it's not that much of a disconnect. The, what the early, true, the, excuse me, the early church grew under is the same thing we grow under or grow from this, uh, today, the New Testament. Timothy had received this teaching from Paul. Where? First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and of course other places as well. That's other things that you know weren't weren't recorded, perhaps, as well as the other apostles, perhaps as well. And now Timothy has this responsibility to guard it. But all believers are entrusted with the Christian faith with guarding it, with guarding the gospel. That is not just Timothy's responsibility as Pastor Timothy. That is every believer's responsibility, and we'll make a further case for that in the later portion of, of the message here. 1 Corinthians 4.1 and Jude chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, but Jude 1.3 teaches us this as well, that there is something given to believers that has been entrusted to them, the faith the Christian faith, and we are to guard it. That might then beg the question, okay, we've answered the question, what is it that has been entrusted, but 
What does it mean to guard? What does it mean to guard? Paul tells Timothy, you've been entrusted with these teachings that I've given to you. Now guard them. The word guard means to protect by careful measures. Protect by careful measures. Since the time I could remember as a child, there was always this glass display cabinet in my parents' kitchen that displayed beautiful pieces of pink depression glass. And I knew my audience should be most familiar with that. We don't have anyone super young, although maybe you're scratching your heads. You can ask your, your parents about that later if you don't know what it is. But my, my mom had these, these very beautiful pink depression glass, this glass set in a cabinet. These pieces had been passed on to my mom from her grandmother who owned them. And although, as I understand it, depression class was often free, uh, you know, given out, or at the very least, a low cost at its origin, my mom took careful measures to protect it because of the value that it had to her, having been entrusted to her by her grandmother. That depression glass had been entrusted to her, and she took very careful measures to protect it or guard it in this cabinet, perhaps to keep it from the danger of being chipped or dropped, which on one occasion it did because it made its way outside of the cabinet by uh, one of her children, whom I will not say, (laughs) but it wasn't me. Of course, this is just one example of what it means to protect or guard something, but I think it is somewhat of a fitting example as it carries the idea of something that has been entrusted to someone for safekeeping, and there's value in it. There was value in it for my mom, and she has it still today because of how she has protected it and guarded it. Of course, what Timothy had been entrusted with was of much greater value and importance than my mom's depression glass protected in that cabinet. He was charged to take careful measures to protect the body of truth we call the Christian faith, the things that we find in God's revealed word that you're reading here this evening and that we're looking at. This included not only the gospel, an important facet of the Christian faith, kind of the entryway, we might say, to the faith. But it also includes all the commands and teachings that we read in Scripture today. As I said a moment ago, then, this is not just for Pastor Timothy or for Pastor Matt or myself. This is a command that is for all of us. Well, we've... We've gotten a grasp then, I hope, on what exactly has been entrusted to us. We've kind of gotten a glimpse of what it means to guard. But now Paul is going to give us the means by which we guard. Look with me at the middle of verse 20. He says, guard what what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And so believers then 
are being taught that we are to guard the faith by avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions. That is the means by which we guard the faith. The theological winds of false doctrine posed a real danger to the Christian faith as false teachers perverted the gospel and and spread their heresy within the church. Timothy is being told to guard the faith by avoiding these teachings. The word avoid here means to turn away from, and the verb has implicitly kind of this imperatival force to it. In fact, uh, maybe some of your translations have a hard stop that is a period. It says something like maybe guard what was committed to your trust, period, avoid profane and idle babblings. Maybe your translation has that. And so in your mind, you might say, well, these are two separate commands, guard, avoid. But really in the Greek text, there's one sentence here, and that helps us understand that although there is, an, there is a command kind of uh, weaved into this idea of avoid, it is still subordinate to the guard. So how do we guard? We guard by avoiding. In other words, the command to guard and the command to avoid are not stand-alone ideas. They're interwoven. They go hand in hand. Said another way, in order to obediently obey the first command, you must obey the second command. You can't be obeying the first command, guard, if you're not obeying the second, because the second is the means to obeying the first. How is Timothy to guard the faith? Avoid the false teaching. The idea of avoiding here is a continuous idea. It's not a once-and-done thing. You have to continually be avoiding it. Maybe, maybe implicit in that is then the fact that false teaching is always trying to get into the church. It is always trying to pervade the church, to pervade your life, even outside of you know, the church worship service, but other places in your life. It's always trying to pervade. It's pervasive, and so it requires a continual avoidance. You are to keep on avoiding it, is the idea. False doctrine is a deadly plague. It's like leaven that leavens the whole dough. Remember Matthew 16, verses 6 to 12, Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their teaching. It's like, it's, it's cancerous. 2 Timothy 2, 17. Remember gangrene? It's like gangrene, and it's caused some, some to go shipwreck in their faith. But again, you might be sitting there asking, this question. I know I'm to guard, and I can, I'm to guard this Christian faith by avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions. But how exactly do I avoid? What does avoiding look like? I believe it carries the idea of separating from and not listening to false teaching. Uh, for, or, excuse me, Titus chapter Chapter 1, verse 14, teaches this idea, perhaps gives us a better understanding of what it means to avoid. Let me begin in uh, 
verse 10, it says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. In other words, false teaching by false teachers. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the faith. So how do we avoid? We avoid by not giving heed, not listening to these these useless wranglings, these Jewish fables and commandments of men that are not, not, uh, not substantiated by the word of God, do not accord with the apostolic teaching. It may mean separating yourself from those who believe in false teaching. We practice that as a church, uh, separating those from, uh, from those who are false teachers, not joining organizations or joining a denomination that would, that would teach against Scripture. We separate from them out of a desire to teach and to practice pure doctrine. It may entail stopping a conversation before it even starts, a conversation that would otherwise be unorthodox and foolish. Maybe you have had this situation, maybe you will, where you're speaking in, a, you know, in kind of a mingling with others, professing believers, and someone starts to go on about something that does not accord with Scripture. And before they even get that far, you just you stop there and say, we are not going to speak about X, you know, whatever X is, because it does not accord with Scripture. So we're not even going to talk about it. And it's dangerous to our people. So stop. That sounds harsh. But that is, that is the responsibility that we've been given to guard the Christian faith. We're not going to give heed. We're not going to give them time of day. We're, we're going to avoid it. And so perhaps you have thought of avoiding as more of a passive thing, like, well, I'm, just, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm going to kind of walk away. That may be part of it, but other times you have to stand firm and say, we are not going to talk about that. That is not the truth. This is the truth. And if you're not going to listen, if you're not going to be teachable, then you're going to have to separate from us. We're going to have to ask you to leave and to separate out of a desire, out of a responsibility to guard the truth. Of course, that requires you to be discerning yourself because there are dangerous doctrines to avoid everywhere. It's not always going to happen in the context where you can say, hey, Pastor Matt, come over here, help me, you know, correct this person or correct their thinking or they're off, something that's unorthodox, that's potentially dangerous to someone's, to someone's faith. You're going to face it in the world around you as well. You're going to hear it on the radio. You're going to hear it in the philosophy of, of the news on TV, the indoctrination of the schools on podcasts, on YouTube videos that you watch, on Facebook. And you have to be discerning and say, I'm going to avoid that. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to heed it. I'm not going to let my family heed it or listen to it because I have the responsibility. I've been charged to guard what was committed or entrusted to me. And I'm going to take careful measures to do that. 
these doctrines are dangerous, as we'll see from the characteristics of the false teaching just now. And that is what drives then this command to guard and to avoid. Paul gives us here in the last part of 20 and into 21 the characteristics of the false teaching, revealing to us why they are so dangerous and why we are told and commanded to guard the the, uh, Christian faith. The false teaching is first characterized as profane and idle babblings and contradictions. Similar to what we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 14. And the word profane here, maybe your translation says something like worldly. The word profane describes everything that is outside of the realm of truth. The worldly things. It is worldly, it is worthless, and hence unholy or profane. Idle babblings could be translated or can be translated as empty chatter. Maybe your translation actually has that. Empty chatter. It's like it's like uh, you know, theological gossip of a sense, useless, unimportant, not true, unsubstantiated. The false teaching is unholy and useless as it does not and cannot produce godliness. That is why it is profane. That is why it is idle babblings or empty chatter, because it does not produce godliness. Remember what 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 says? It says, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. In other words, empty chatter, profane uh, and idle babblings. Why? Because they cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Also, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22. Let me get there. I don't think that's the verse I want. (laughs) But the similar idea was there as well in the verse that I can't call to my memory, that they are to avoid it because of it, it produces... Not godliness, but the exact opposite, ungodliness, irreverent behavior. Maybe the verse will come to my mind in just a moment. The empty chatter characterizes all that the false teachers teach as knowledge. Oh, yeah, I found it here, 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. It says, uh, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more godliness. No. What does it say? More ungodliness. That is what makes it profane and idle babblings. And so this empty chatter uh, characterizes all that the false teachers teach as knowledge, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Furthermore, the false teaching is full of contradictions. That should cause you to pause right there and say, hold on a second. Why are, we, why are we heeding this? Why are we listening to this if it's full of contradictions? 
And the word profane here doesn't just describe uh, the idle babblings. It actually describes the contradictions as well. So it's, it's ungodly or profane contradictions. The, uh, <clears throat> the foolish teaching of the false, or the foolish false teaching is, the fact, let me say it this way, the fact that this false teaching is full of contradictions makes it foolish, makes it empty chatter. And that it is full of opposing ideas and propositions. Contrast that with the apostolic teaching, or we'll just say the scripture. The scripture is not contradictory. It is cohesive. It is consistent. It is self-authenticating. Unlike scripture, you can poke holes in the arguments of the false teachers. It cannot, it cannot be done to scripture, at least not uh, properly or not, uh, uns- not being substantiated in any way. It is worthless and illogical, therefore, Paul says, to accept these things. Rather, Paul instructs Timothy to avoid it altogether. In other words, don't even waste your time. It's illogical. It's worthless. It's full of holes. This false teaching is further characterized as falsely being called knowledge. The reality is that the false teaching is disguised as true knowledge by those who profess it, which makes it all the more dangerous, especially for those who are young in the faith, those who are easily swayed by smooth talkers, or those who simply enjoy arguments and disputes. But Paul calls it out for what it really is. It is a mislabeled thing. It's being mislabeled as knowledge. It is, in fact, though, pseudo-knowledge, false knowledge, Paul says. It's falsely called or falsely named knowledge. This knowledge was puffed up, ignorant, self-serving. 1 Timothy 1.7 teaches us this, as well as chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, because you remember the false teachers. Why were they propagating this false teaching? Remember their motivations? Pride? Uh, as well as a means of gain? 1 Timothy 1.7 points out the fact that these people are ignorant, and so is their knowledge, or so-called knowledge, If you remember all the way back there, I'll just read it for you. It says, uh, beginning in verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. You see the ignorance there? They don't even know what they're talking about. Much less can they substantiate it or prove that it is true knowledge. And so this kind of pseudo-knowledge is characterized as being a knowledge that is puffed up, ignorant, self-serving. Contrast that with true knowledge, which reveals the glory of God in Christ and teaches us to know Christ, 
Colossians 2, 1 to 10, Philippians 3, 8. That's what true knowledge is characterized by. It teaches us who Christ is. It produces godliness. It, it brings us into maturity and a deeper understanding of the knowledge of Christ. It is not self-serving. It is not, it is not puffed up. It is humble. It is seeking to exalt Christ and the Father. This knowledge is a pseudo-false knowledge. But the problem remains that it, 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 uh, it affects people in a very negative way. The false teaching, we learn, causes some to stray from the faith. Some fall to it even though it is profane and idle babblings and full of contradictions. There are some that still fall to it, fall prey to this pseudo-knowledge. And so the reason that Paul commands us then to avoid this knowledge or so-called knowledge is because of its obvious danger. The word professing means to claim to be well accomplished in something, to give oneself out as an expert in something. And so those who had accepted this quote-unquote knowledge were professing that they were experts in this. They were professing to, to be well accomplished in their understanding of the scriptures of the Christian faith when in fact they were not. They were the exact opposite. And we see that by professing to have this so-called knowledge, some stray from the faith. That is, this false doctrine caused them to depart the Christian faith. Second Peter one or excuse me, Second Peter two, one to two warns against this accepting and receiving or professing this so-called knowledge because of its danger in causing some to depart. But make note that this, this is not a passive walking away. This is a deliberate choice. It is a, a conscious decision to reject the faith out of a pride to say, you know what, I have more knowledge. <laughs> See the arrogance in that? Totally totally opposite of true knowledge that comes to the scriptures. I know what is right. You don't. What they're really saying is, actually, the scriptures are wrong, and I'm right. I have more knowledge. I have some secret knowledge, perhaps. You know, God's showing me in a vision or in a dream. He's taught me this, you know. Well, does that accord with scripture? If not, then, uh, you know, it's, it's not true knowledge. And if it is true knowledge, well, you know, maybe you, you, you dreamed it in a dream, but, you know, probably that was derived from something you read in, in Scripture. You know, the things you dream about are the things you think about. So unless it accords with, with Scripture, it is not true knowledge. The unfortunate fact then is that some have strayed from the faith because that they, they did not take careful measures to guard the Christian faith. Guard the things which they had once accepted as the truth. They have forsaken it. They have let down their guard because they neglected to avoid the false teaching. I pray that that will not happen to any of us nor we will, will we allow it to happen to others in our church 
or to our church corporately, we must be on guard. Finally, Paul gives a closing salutation. We'll close here this evening with just one or two final thoughts. Paul says this, In closing, grace be with you. Amen. This closing salutation is not unexpected, as Paul often closes his letters in the same way. We see this in 2 Timothy 4.22, the verse that I looked at earlier, where Paul says, Grace be with you. He also closes the letter to the Colossians in a similar manner. The grace, though, that Paul speaks of here, that source, we should say, or the source, I'll say, of this grace is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 16. I'll just read it very quickly here. Romans 16, verse 20. Paul says this, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the author or source, we might say, probably better author because it's, a, it's not inanimate. It's an animate object. It's our Lord. So the author of this grace is Jesus Christ. I find interesting, uh, you don't notice this in the English translation because of the difference between the English language and the Greek but the word you here, at least in some manuscripts, is plural. So we might say you all, especially if you're from down south. You all. Grace be with you all. Paul uses the plural you, I think because Paul has more than Timothy in mind. He's closing a letter that indeed is for Timothy, and Timothy probably read it first, you know, in his own kind of situation or, you know, in his own house. But this letter was meant to be read before the whole church. And so what Paul is, as he closes, he's saying, Grace be with you, Timothy, but all, but to you all in the church. That is, all those who would hear this letter read or taught to them. And so by extension we might say great, uh, Paul is speaking to us today because this letter is being read, it is being taught, and Paul is asking God to give the grace that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ to you and to you and to you and to me. This grace enables Timothy and us today to keep all the commands and truth that has, have been entrusted to us. We need that grace, don't we, in order to obey these commands? And as we conclude, let us consider our responsibility in regard to the instructions that were originally written to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, but by extension to us the, there are instructions we've seen throughout First Timothy for us concerning praying for all men, not just for their salvation, but also so that we can live peaceable lives. Remember this? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, that was actually our first message in First Timothy before we went back to the beginning of chapter 1. Paul has instructed us, among, among many things, to 
uh, especially for men, to be men who are praying with pure hearts, specifically in the public prayers of of the men of the church, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember, Paul has instructed us that women are to adorn themselves with godliness, not to be concerned with their apparel and how they look and, you know, how their others perceive them. But if they've made a claim to godliness, Paul, remember, he says, then adorn yourselves with godliness. Paul has instructed us concerning the qualifications regarding elders and deacons, although that may not apply specifically because you're not feeling called to the office of of, uh, elder or deacon. It applies to you in the sense that you are the ones who are observing those who feel that call, feel that they have been called by God, and we have the responsibility to ensure that they truly meet the qualifications. Amongst other things, and finally, remember that Paul has instructed us to pursue godliness with contentment. And we need God's grace to do all of these things. We cannot do them by ourselves. Timothy could not do it by himself. A much more godly person than we could ever aspire to be. Yet he too, Paul recognized and affirmed, needed the grace of God. And so we pray that. And I I often close that, uh, maybe an email or other letters like that, maybe you've seen that, grace be with you. Not because I, you know, I'm trying to personify Timothy or anything like that, but because we recognize that in all matters we need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly. That's what amen, amen means, truly. So let's close with a word of prayer as we end our time this evening. Heavenly Father, May you help us to obediently guard the scriptures, guard the faith, that which was committed to us when we received it as our own, as being the truth, embracing your Son as our Savior. And Lord, that comes with many responsibilities. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace even this evening, that you would shed your grace upon us. Help us in all of these areas to do what has been committed to us. Lord, may your people now go their ways, just being discerning, avoiding that which is unorthodox, that is contrary to the cohesive and consistent true word of God. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.